0: Ultimately, it comes back to empathy. Like, it's hard enough for us, whatever age we are, I'm in my middle years, but like, think about what it might be like to be 15 right now, and then come from that place of empathy and understanding. Welcome to the Center for
1: Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. everyone. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, the Education Director and the Northeast Director. And with me, as always, is Ben Tapper. Hey, Ben.
2: Hey, Matt. Great to be here
1: today. And Ben is the Associate for Resource Consulting from the Indianapolis office. So the interview you're going to hear in just a bit is with an expert in education and specifically digital education, someone I used to work with back in the day. But before we get there, we're going to talk a little bit about education and how we're encountering education in the congregational space in Indiana. So, Ben, what are your thoughts on that?
2: This idea, this topic of Christian education is one that, as we were talking about a couple moments ago, seems very specific at first glance. And then when you look at it closer upon further inspection, you recognize that literally almost anything can fall under the umbrella of Christian education. And then when you break down the different denominational differences, cultural differences, generational differences that can be at play, there's just a lot to unpack. And so every now and then I'll have a case with a congregation where they're wanting to do a Sunday school curriculum, you know, for a specific age group. But that's usually the extent that the education and that I get to do in my role goes, but there's so many more conversations that are being had. I will say, like we've mentioned in other podcasts, there have been congregations that, as part of their grant initiatives, whether it's engaging young adults, or formative, or regular resource grant, that have tried to figure out and identify resources for continued learning around issues like racial justice or white supremacy, and so I would even put that under Christian education even if it's not like a formalized regular part of the education in a congregation, we've seen an uptick in those requests taking place. But, you know, in terms of my general thoughts, I'm just amazed at just how vast the idea of education is. And then adding on the digital aspect and the online component to it and the way that's exploded the last year, there's just so much to cover.
1: Yeah, there really is. And I confess to coming to the conversation with Mike and I was thinking in the old narrow view that I used to have, where you're thinking about, maybe faith formation, or maybe even just information about theology or your sacred texts or things like that. But, you know, th- so much of that depends on your definition of what it means to educate. Yeah. And usually I think we have in the past as a culture defaulted to the idea of information transfer, but there's a real changing landscape out there that education is really more about personal formation or forming the character of people. And I think we hit a little bit on that in the interview. But where I've been seeing it, where I've been really impressed with congregations in Indiana is there are some that continue to come back time and time again looking for conferences, looking for books, looking for curriculum. And they take very seriously the fact that they are a learning organization And that they're learning together. And this is not just uh, staff or leadership. This is the whole congregation where they'll set up conferences for men, conferences for women, conferences for young parents, things for young adults, you know, all across the spectrum. And I wonder about in the absence of Sunday school and the absence of specific curriculum outside of maybe K through 12, if you even still have that as a part of your congregation— if congregations can rediscover what it means to be a learning organization that teaches in order to shape the personhood of the people under their care. Mm. And so it is the sacred texts. It is maybe theology and doctrine, but also how those play out and interact in all of the other spheres related to life. Because I think we've narrowed the congregational experience, or at least so many congregations that I've encountered have narrowed the congregational experience to Sunday morning worship where you get a little bit of education because of the sermon, but that's really about it, and then people go on about their weeks. And make no mistake, we're learning every day all day. It's just a matter of what are our sources of learning, where are we getting that, and how do we draw that learning back into the congregation? I'm making for great radio here because I'm using these really big, expansive gestures.
2: They're great gestures, though. If y'all could see them, you would appreciate them the way I'm appreciating them now. But just, so just know they're great gestures. But how do we
1: bring that back into the congregational space where the congregational community takes some ownership over some aspect of lifelong learning for the people in their care?
2: And I think it even goes beyond transforming an individual. I think as you do that, you're actually committing to being transformed as an organization. And that can feel hopeful, but that can also feel maybe challenging and threatening. And so there's got to be a level of intentionality and care that comes along with the work of intentionally and proactively educating. Because if the people in the organization change, guess what? the organization's going to change. And actually, I would argue that people are always changing. It's just a matter of how they're changing. And when you're intentional about your education, you have the chance to maybe drive the change in a way that aligns with values that you hold as an organization or values that the individuals that are being transformed hold. So just a matter of, of how active you are in the change process or if you're just kind of watching it happen.
1: Yeah, keeping that intentionality in top of mind, I think, is really important. And also thinking about the destination. Where are you trying to get to?
2: Yeah, North Carolina. That's that's the ultimate goal for me, Charlotte maybe, Raleigh.
1: <laughs> that was that was a hard left and a non sequitur,
2: but okay. You asked where you're trying to get to, so that's what I'm trying to get to.
1: Very good. Well, Ben's trying to get to North Carolina, but you may want to think about where your congregation is trying to get, and maybe North Carolina. Maybe you want to just pick up the whole thing and change places. So you never know. It's. Definitely an option. But anyway, but yeah, just the idea that education is such a broad topic. Our conversation was pretty wide ranging, but I'd ask you that if it starts off with something that you're not super interested in, hang in there because there really are some good nuggets throughout and we do cover a lot of different bases as we go. So we really hope you enjoy our conversation with Mike Palmer. All right. Welcome back, everyone. I'm glad to have with us today Mike Palmer, who's the founder, publisher, and a podcast host for Palmer Media. also has a podcast called Trending in Education that's a really good podcast on all the different things happening in the world of education. And for full transparency, Mike and I used to work together back in the day in online education. So, Mike, we're so glad you're here today. Welcome.
0: Yeah, thanks. I'm really happy to join y'all.
1: Mike, we're hoping to talk to you about education simply because that's your background. You've been in the world of digital ed for, what, 20 years now?
0: Yeah, I started when I was four. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, I'm maybe a little older than that. But yes, it's been uh, 20 plus years. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, he's kidding. He started when he was eight. (laughs) But we're really glad to have you here simply because I think Christian education or religious spiritual education is a tricky thing because each congregation has people who have higher or lower degrees of interest in those things. And it's also a lot harder sometimes to get folks to show up for specifically for educational kinds of things. But with the pandemic, if it's shown us anything, we can do all kinds of distance learning. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that one of the biggest analogs to congregational learning is corporate learning, because you have to educate a very large workforce but they're doing other things. They're very busy with all kinds of other things. So it's not like it's a degree program, right? Right. And so I think there's some crossover between what happens in the corporate space and what happens in the the religious space. So talk a little bit about some of the things that you see in the corporate world where companies have been able to make education more accessible and more effective, especially using digital tools.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, we're in Zoom right now and the extent to which people no longer are tethered to a physical office, For their corporate experience, for their organizational experience, is really a transformation we've seen in the last year. And it's been interesting to see how different organizations have been able to adapt to working from home and the level of trust that's necessary with your workforce to believe that they'll still be productive if you don't have them within your line of sight. I think that was a recent transformation, but there's a longer trend leading into that, which is the readiness to go virtual in ways that used to be face to face. And that's something that we've been doing in, you know, corporate education, online learning for like the last 20 years. Like my whole career has been about moving things online that traditionally were only done face to face. And it's interesting when you think about the congregational context, probably less experimentation prior to the pandemic. And then I would imagine a ton more of we have to do this now with some urgency and intent. So I think there are some parallels, but I think there was probably more general readiness and preparedness. Disaster recovery is something we talk about a lot in organizations. So like if people can't, you know, if there's a fire or if, you know, your main headquarters are unavailable, there have to be business continuity plans. So I think all of that was pretty burned in on the corporate side. That sort of the show must go on. Never go dark is something we always talked about, Matt, and we were working together. So I think there is a level of like resilience and intent to the way organizations go about designing a digital program that is probably a little more mature than congregations were prior to the pandemic. But then I think you probably have a really mixed bag, which is why I do find this space fascinating, honestly, I, like where I imagine you have some early adopters who could thrive through the transition, smaller percentage, you know, 10, 15%, I don't know how much. And then the majority of folks are really kind of shook and looking forward to getting out of digital. But then if you do look at the corporate setting as a parallel, I don't think we ever go back to going to the office in the way that we did prior to the pandemic, because there are plenty of ways in which you can have a more flexible, portable engagement with your work When you can do it from your home and you're untethered from the traditional nine to five and the facetime i think it's different in that the congregation is more of the experience of being present with others is so foundational to like a spiritual experience that there's probably a lot more reluctance and skepticism that it could translate as readily into digital format
1: Yeah. One of the things, Mike, and maybe this will be helpful for you as we think about these trends, uh, you know, when I was growing up, we were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night. So Sunday morning was your typical worship. Sunday night, you would generally have a sermon and maybe some singing. And then Wednesday night was kind of reserved for more of instruction or education. And then you also had Sunday school on Sunday morning. In the last 20 years, that has really dropped substantially to where most congregations, I don't want to say, I don't know if most is true, but a lot of congregations have moved to pretty much just the Sunday morning worship model. And I've even seen articles and people talking about the death of Sunday school, which was primary religious education mode. Mm -hmm. And that's not really there anymore. And so really there's been a huge absence of religious education. And I think that you're right about the adopters, that of course there were people who were already online, already doing it well, and they had to figure and tweak a few things. But a lot of other congregations, it was their first foray. Mm -hmm. And now that we've been in this digital space, I've heard congregations talking about, you know, why don't we do our board meetings online now? Because we've got, you know, Jerry goes to Florida for six months out of the year and he's on the board. It'd be great to have him as a part of it. Or, you know, they're learning about these prayer times on Facebook on Wednesday mornings that everybody's logging into. So there's just all kinds of options and opportunities that before the pandemic, they were too hard to push into, but now they've had to push into them. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about wrestling with some of those things of how do we bring back robust religious education now that we have these tools that we didn't know how to use before.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it is interesting, where did that time go when people stopped going to a physical school to do the stuff? How much was left to parents? You know, the way we think about parents' roles in education in light of the pandemic is a really interesting trend that I've been tracking, like how much more engaged parents are in the conversation about education now in light of the pandemic. I think there's an opportunity for folks who are thinking about jobs to be done that's not a corporate idea but there's business frameworks where you basically think about who's your audience who are your customers who are you serving and then what's in it for them like what are they looking for like why are they engaging with you and sunday school is an interesting example where you're imagining an audience out there that wants this service from you but in reality they're getting that job done differently in light of the new things that are in the world around them, or maybe they're just less interested in it or whatever. But there's a lot of honest assessment that happens in product development and in the way a lot of organizations think about developing their programs where they're much more responsive to the audience. They're much more testing all the time. Does this work? If it doesn't, what do I tweak or change? And I think that mindset is one that I think can start to inform some of the smaller pieces that will stay in the congregational setting. It's also where, you know, the idea of agile product development is this massive revolution that happened in how people think about doing work in a professional setting, coming out of software development, but it's really expanding in all different directions. But it's basically saying go after smaller measurable components, rather than the alternative which is waterfall which is you know trying to go after everything and be very specific about all the componentry that you want to design and what i think is a real opportunity for congregations coming out of the pandemic response is that everyone was forced into the water you know like they learned how to swim at least a little bit and now they don't have to be in the pool anymore but you know, sometimes it's a hot day, or you know, sometimes you want to have a, a floaty toy and a, and a cocktail. You know, so whatever it is, like I think there are ways in which I wouldn't want to see a full snapping back to the way it was before. And then to your point about some of the things that went away if part of why they went away is that it was more of a hassle to get there and there were more goodies that were available through other formats. Now, if they were spending their time on YouTube or social media, now you probably have a format or two that you could play with that are maybe even Facebook Live is delivered through social media, you know, or you could have a pretty easily have a YouTube channel now. And then it becomes a more of a marketing question, but you kind of have a captive audience too, where like you would imagine your congregation would at least sample a little bit from what you're putting out there. so I think there's a real opportunity hopefully for're talking not just about the top tier. I think maybe the the second chunk maybe like 50th percentile up you know like I think there's a real opportunity to feel more empowered by the change and ready to kind of lean in on the other side and I think even folks who are, had a little more difficulty adopting, if they got there at all, I think they probably unlocked new ways of accessing, Things that weren't there before. As an example, my wife, you know, has her family, many of them still live in Guyana. And when there are now funeral services or families just want to connect to each other or whatever they want to do, people who felt more disconnected and far away now feel very much more connected. And those things won't go away. And in some ways, the virtual support systems that we've built that got us through the pandemic, I think we'll have a much longer shelf life. And I would encourage folks to think about how you can retain it, but go small, go agile, bite off something, do a little experiment. And if it doesn't work, just let it go. You know, you don't have to keep doing it.
2: I'm thinking about education in a broader sense. So I worked for a couple years with the high school aged youth at a Mennonite church here in Indianapolis. And one of the consistent struggles that I noticed, and I, I imagine other youth ministers noticed this, is this tension between holding the values of the congregation and then meeting the teenagers where they're actually at and dealing with their values, right? And so a question I always held is, how do I help provide a certain level of education, mentoring, et cetera, that generally holds the values the congregation holds? but also is actually practically useful for these teenagers. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm wondering if you have any insights from what you've gleaned in other industries about how a congregation can hold its values in tension with and in conjunction with its end goal of offering something useful for whatever demographic it's trying to educate.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. To me, I immediately gravitate to the idea of psychological safety, which is a big thing in a lot of organizational psychology where you're trying to build a culture that can retain and develop talent and ultimately help them mature to the point where they can even challenge the status quo is the level of psychological safety that healthy cultures are seeking out. And a lot of what that's built on is a foundation of rewarding vulnerability. And I think in particular, if the vulnerability is coming from the traditional seat of power. So like if you're exposing as a leader or as someone who's trying to hold this thing together, an authority figure, that you have questioned some of these things, that you've gone through some of these struggles yourself, that you were fifteen once, and you know, share a story about your own challenges, and you don't have to be heroic winner there. You maybe you strayed in the wrong direction, you know, but you've at least established that you're willing to put yourself out there, hmm. and you're saying that that's okay. And then you have to reinforce that when other people volunteer that same level of themselves, that you're very supportive of that, even if maybe it is challenging some values, you know, because honestly, one of my jobs prior to getting into education was child and adolescent psychology, and I would run a group all the time. And you'd always want to get at values, like if you could have a conversation about values, particularly with teenagers, the fact that you can have a mature conversation with them, you can model what a mature conversation about values is with them. And generally that means there's no easy answers. Hmm. I think that can do a world of good in terms of their perception. And then I think if they understand that that is that level of trust and unconditional love for whatever they're putting out there, I think ultimately that's how you keep them connected in some way over
2: a longer haul. Mm. Just thinking that that idea of reconnecting to values and establishing that relatability and that relationship first, I agree. I feel that is so important. And it feels like it might run counter to some of the traditions that we're developing Christian education from, especially as it relates to adolescents and teenagers. You know, And so I imagine that may be, new or difficult, you know, for some folks to hear if they come from certain traditions.
0: Yeah. I also imagine we go through generational waves too, you know, like what was Christian education like in the 60s or the 70s, you know, in the US, depending on what the cultural movements were happening at the same time. We are very much amidst a cultural movement that was put upon us by the pandemic. And then there were others social forces that were leading to more upheaval and more uprising social movements than we've really seen i guess since like the 60s and the 70s so to think about ultimately it comes back to empathy like it's hard enough for us whatever age we are i'm in my middle years but like think about what it might be like to be 15 right now yeah and then come from that place of empathy and understanding But I think that's always been out there. I think there have been people who have always had that mindset, but I definitely hear you. One thing we see also is sort of the contrast between command and control versus more emergent organizational structures, which is another trend, decentralized organizations rather than more centralized top-down. Like That's been a trend that we're seeing more lately. And that's another thing that I think probably runs counter to some of the more doctrinaire aspects of religious education. You know, I was raised Catholic. So I certainly There's
2: no structure there at all. It's not gonna be that
0: conversation. <laughs> but, uh, but there there was a lot that went into my education, but I also went to public school, you know, so I think it is interesting to understand where different adults got their religious education, and then how much of that they're bringing back to the table when they are designing these things, I think is a really good insight. And then I don't know what you do with that, but I think it's good to understand that when people are designing these things.
1: Yeah, it seems to speak to me of a longer cultural arc that the congregational life is a part of, of what does it mean to educate? And, you know, there's the old tabula rasa, the students a blank slate, and you dump information on them, and that's what it means to educate. And then that coupled with the sense that you dump your kids off to school, and the school is their education, and then they come home, and the parents aren't, you know— involved in that. And I think just because the culture is that way, congregations have had those same assumptions as well. And I don't even know if most congregational leaders could be able to articulate what it means to educate their congregation at any level. That, you know, the sermon serves a different purpose than straight education, although you're educated through it, but that's not its primary purpose. And what has been some of the bigger shifts in kind of theories of education in the last 20, 30 years where we've gone from this, you know, you sit in rows, you listen, you take notes, you take tests to now we have this. What is the new this?
0: Yeah, it's a couple things. I mean, I think one is design thinking. So I think being somewhat systematic in how you think about the user, the learner, the religious follower, whatever you want to describe your constituency as, be very intentional about that. Who are you designing this for? What do they need? Are you delivering on that? How do you measure success? There's a lot of instrumentation that has happened Perhaps too far, if you think about it, like there is a lot of like the marketing industrial complexes out there, like tuning all of our experiences. There's a lot of talk about the attention economy where a lot of these platforms are being designed to kind of grab our attention. It's also sometimes called surveillance capitalism is another term of art that's out there. So I think that level of data-driven instrumental orientation towards the bottom line is a problem in some ways, if you think about it, problem from a perspective of like what values are behind this, if it's ultimately all about profit and the individuals are really part of the marketing advertising machine, you know, there's some moral questions that begins to, to raise in terms of what the private sector is doing. But that said, the stuff does work. Like there is a way to design things that is very efficient, addictive, seamless delightful <laughs> and i think frequently your your moral education your spiritual education your religious education is frequently saying you need to reject some of that to actually achieve more fulfillment more enlightenment a higher level of understanding of your mission your life so i think it's a delicate dance like i've thought about it a lot on the learning front is how much should and can i adopt what works in marketing for learning purposes And I have found that it's not 100% fit. I think there are places where it's almost there's a cold calculus that goes into the marketing analytics that frequently you start to lose your learner if you apply that same level of instrumentality to the return on their attention. Generally in learning, I think there needs to be more of an emotional connection to the product. You need to feel like you trust the humans on the other side. It should also be human-centered. And I think frequently marketing and the private sector kind of falls down on that front. But some brands do better. I think generally education when done well, learning experiences when designed well are generally built upon that foundation of a really close, intimate connection with another human who's having a shared experience in some way, maybe they've even been through the thing they're trying to impart to you. And that's where I think there's some really, and this is what you and I've talked about before, Matt, I think there's some really interesting intersections then, you know, so if you start thinking about what about what's emerging in learning, human-centered learning design, what can we learn from emotionally resonant, human-centered learning design built on a foundation of psychological safety and shared values that is building corporate cultures. If I'm in a congregation or whatever kind of role I have on the the more spiritual side, you know, if I'm a leader in that context, maybe I could go to a learning conference. Just, you know, I've been doing a trend spotting podcast for coming up on five years. And what I've found is I think it's more important to be looking laterally nowadays than going deep into a particular lane. And I think being intentional about where I can play with my head up and go across. I actually think the trends around religious education, particularly the stuff that centers around the values, character education is another trend that is, is really big. Nowadays, I think there's a real hunger for a lot of what congregations may take for granted, in which case the digital is just kind of like a vehicle for it. But at the same time, you probably aren't being as intentional about designing things that really make an impact to the people on the other side. And that's where I'd say, You know, some of the revolutions around product development, instructional design, learning science. There is a real body of knowledge out there that's pretty accessible. It's pretty easy to master. Learning how to learn is a great course. Barbara Oakley out of San Diego State. Very accessible. And, you know, in some ways we're built to learn, too. So, like, it's not that hard to pick up. And then you also know when it works. Like, you adopt some tactics, you know, even like reflecting on what you learned every day, as simple as, in addition to the time you spend praying, is there a time when you just are consolidating what you learned and reflecting back on your day? You know, they're very much two sides of the same coin, I think, in some ways. I would definitely encourage more focus and attention on the intersection between learning and spiritual life, and in particular, where the innovation may be coming from. I think we're entering a really interesting phase. Hopefully the public health emergency starts to subside and then then I'm really curious what we're heading into you know for the next next 10 years
2: I'm wondering uh, michael you know How the education that is springing up, especially in white mainline congregations and some evangelical congregations regarding racial justice and racial equity, if there are different rules at play in designing that type of education versus other types of education. And I ask because I know how tense of a topic that can be and how much tension it can create internally. And then that can create a a dynamic where there's internal tension, but maybe also tension between the person doing the learning and the person offering the instruction. And so are there different things to keep in mind when designing education around a topic like that?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Buzzwords that jump to my one is, you know, trauma-informed is one that's big on the learning side. And Basically, it means there's a time and a place to talk about things that are very emotionally charged and intense. It doesn't mean you should never talk about those things. You absolutely should. And I think there's a responsibility. You know, it's a spiritual connection. It's something where you are trying to help people as part of your mission. I would also argue against, you know, head in the sand, avoid this stuff because it's hard. Trauma-informed generally, to me, reminds me of my professional career, which is like, there's a time when it's HR's problem and it's no longer yours. And I feel like there's a level to which you want to have your antenna antenna up. And again, psychological safety is still probably the foundation. So like, for me, I wound up having lots of conversations about race and social justice, critical race theory, and, you know, just own your own lived experience. And also don't beat yourself up too much about it too, which is another thing that I think frequently can like almost undercut your ability to have the conversation, uh, particularly for white people who are in many of these conversations, you know, there's almost a sense of like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. So I'm just going to kind of check out and check a box. And I think that's not the way to do it ultimately. And then on the flip side, I think, you know, I've seen more stuff lately among people of color threads that I've seen where being able to tag in a white person to talk to another white person about, about racial stuff too. where like,
2: <laughs> That is super important.
0: <laughs> it's really important. Like it's crazy, but like, so I, again, I, I do, I go back to, I worked at Kaplan for years. So I do think of things on a continuum lots of times, like if you're kind of okay talking about this stuff, even if it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, I would say that's probably, you know, Pain is weakness leaving the body, you know, so like if you're having a difficult conversation, you're probably in the right space, but I'd say like still remember a foundation of psychological safety and remember there are experts and people are going to come at this from all sorts of places. So you don't want to trigger something you're not ready to manage, you know, so I think I may have effectively hedged and not answered that, but, uh, but at least you get a sense of where I'm at. <laughs>
2: You did. You did it very well. Um, He's a true professional. He he is. consummate professional in every way, folks. But you did bring up some really useful things, at least in my experience. And one is this idea of psychological safety, right? I'd speak to it and call it kind of like a foundation of care. As many of these discussions and trainings as I lead, I still forget to do this sometimes. But I want to prioritize entering and exiting that discussion with periods to kind of like Unwind, de escalate, kind of reground not only yourself, but also the people that you're with, because these can be very traumatic, activating conversations for folks. And so, if you can frame any discussion with that foundation of care and safety, that is really helpful. And then, as a person of color, you're absolutely right. Being able to tag in a white person to talk to other white people sometimes, it's like, please. <laughs> take over now. I got to go rest. Like, So it's nice to just to have a network of support. I mean, you both know this. When you're doing education, different people have different roles, you know, at different moments. And so to have a team with you that's crafting whatever education or leading whatever session you're doing is super important. And so I think, yeah, just the importance of not always trying to have to go it alone or do it alone, but to rely on your team when you need to and to recognize when it's time to tag them in and when it's time for you to take a step back and vice versa is, is helpful.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And I would also say the, you know, if your team isn't diverse, like check that, you know, like yeah. we're at a point where, I mean, obviously if your congregation is not diverse, if it's only people of a particular type, that is, from me sitting on the outside, I would probably want to understand more about that. And is that something you're, why is that? You should at least have an understanding of that. That's true in Black churches as well. You know, like there are elements where a congregation may be defined to some extent on a racial profile, but I'd say like there is a also a revolution around difference-seeking and understanding that Ultimately, there's almost an instrumental argument for diversity and inclusion. I've actually seen, I saw an article recently about this, which was in higher ed, where white people respond better to an instrumental argument for diversity and inclusion programs in higher ed, saying that ultimately it's better for your student body if there's more diversity there. That's the type of program that frequently a white audience might get more behind, Whereas a Black audience or a minority audience may resonate more with a values-based argument for this, like for restorative justice is the right thing to do and that's why you should do it. For me, I see it as a both end. I genuinely believe that it will make you better if you're seeking out difference and you understand more, and particularly if you could be inclusive of that difference, it does ultimately make the collective stronger. So at least having some opportunities to tap into perspectives outside of your own. I think that is another byproduct of this this shift to online, where a lot of the separation that we saw was tied to physical separation. And now that we're in virtual spaces, it's a lot easier to get different admixtures of constituencies together. And I imagine that's an interesting thing too, like particularly for, for the two of you working in this space where you're dealing with many different types of congregations, I imagine you start to see trends and connections across them that may be harder for them to see themselves.
1: Are, are you starting to interview us now, Mike? Is that I figured I
0: had to try it at least once. I had to, like, we were getting to that point in the conversation. I didn't want to be too obvious about it. And then the turn. <laughs>
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you're right. I think we do see trends. And as someone who has been involved in congregations my whole life and even involved in leadership in some degree, this job has given me an opportunity to see things from a different perspective and see the commonalities among congregations as organizations. And I was actually reflecting on that while you were talking about someone might be sitting down listening to this podcast who's a teacher for middle schoolers, right? And let's say it's Helen. And Helen decides to listen to this podcast on education because she wants to do a little bit better. And she's just stepped into a maelstrom of topics and thoughts and ideas that are absolutely overwhelming. But it gets at the scarcity of involvement of time and volunteers in congregations. And this is not to make anyone feel guilty. By no means. We all have busy lives. But it's really difficult to find someone to step into a role where they're educating in a congregation who has a background in education. You know, it might just be they really like working with kids. And so, you know, you hook them up with a curriculum and they do their best. And that's great. But the support needed is really important. And there are so many topics in congregations where... Everyone involved is an amateur, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Amateur means you do it for the love of the thing, which is actually quite beautiful. But finding the support systems in place on so many things, and I think because we're talking about education here, Mike, I'd be interested in what are some of the low-hanging support systems that a congregational leader could access to provide to their people who are educating and just say, hey, just do this one thing that'll take you, you know— an hour a week for a few weeks. And I really think this will help. Is there anything out there like that?
0: I was just talking to a, an educator. His name is Jim Lang. He wrote a book called Small Teaching. And then there's another version of it, which is Small Teaching Online. And it, it's basically taking bite-sized, actionable, iterative steps to get better at teaching as a practice. Small Teaching was the first book, which was about just broader practices, probably skewing more towards face-to-face. And then the small teaching online was an extension of that into online. So I'd say that's one area. I'd say another area is depending on the software that you're looking at to use, there's likely a user community of interest around it. So they're probably offering workshops and conferences. You know, Zoom does it, Slack does it, you know, all the different platforms that might be out there. Particularly if you're excited by the use of that software, and then similarly, if you're an educator or if you're working in a professional context and there's software that you're using in a work context that you think could extend into supporting your congregation, I would say play with your head up in that respect. And then frequently that can start to move you even on a professional track if you are someone who finds this stuff interesting. Cause that's frequently what the software company is going to want people with the depth of knowledge in your particular domain as evangelists and advocates. So, you know, if you did want to develop some expertise, help your congregation, and then also help yourself, you'll be more employable and you might have different job options. If you really are excited by some of the software, of course, Helen may not be excited by the software, but I just, in case she is like, I do find that frequently you need Somebody who's willing to run the digital program to volunteer that. And then those people are the quiet heroes frequently because they both need to have the technical expertise. But increasingly, it's more the social, emotional connectivity, the emotional intelligence and patience to be able to bring other people along. And also, continuing to power through even if you're not getting the results you want because every experiment is not going to be a home run. So, you know, hopefully I'm speaking to that audience or I'm trying to encourage people to be those people because they're the ones who really power any of the community-based stuff that's going to turn our current situation around. And that's why I really do appreciate the opportunity to get on this show because talking to people who are leaders within their community is something that is a recurring theme community-based education and a lot of community-based education is really powered by the church and the congregation as much as the school so yeah so i hope we didn't scare helen away i think there's hope and i do think there's really heroic work to be done to stick with some of the great stuff that can come out of the pandemic even though a lot of it people probably are tired of and just want to move past hang in there helen
2: hang in there
1: well, but you raise a great point, Mike, that the pandemic has affected pretty much all sectors of society. And chances are, if you're a congregational leader, there are people sitting in your congregation that have learned tons over the last year. And sitting down with some folks who you know have some expertise in, even if it's just like your young adults on social media, and just talking with them and saying, hey, you know, hey, folks, these are the challenges that the congregation's having. What do you know that could help? or somebody who is an educator, maybe they're in a K-12 system. They've learned so much about online ed. Our school system did not have online ed at all. They were working towards it for you know snow days and things like that. But man, talk about crash course. And they had to get the parents involved and they did that relatively well. And now it's a pretty smooth system. And so society in general is much more prepared for this kind of thing. And therefore your congregation is much more prepared for this kind of thing because those people, their training and their expertise are sitting right there in front of you. And I think we often forget, I know this has been true for me, that I'll start on a learning journey and 12 months later, something that I take for granted is an absolute mind-blowing piece of information or a step that someone has never thought about. And so For anyone listening who's not in leadership in your congregation, you may know things that you take for granted now that you did not know 12 months ago, and you can use that to serve your local congregation in some way, shape, or form.
0: Yeah. And just to jump on that too, I haven't quoted Marshall McLuhan yet, so I'm going to do that. So the medium is the message as well. So I'd say if you can experiment in media formats that are more where people are, And you're sort of flipping the dynamic there and you're trying to be experimental in ways that will, you know, uh, Ben brought up, you know, youth outreach or teens, like where would they go? Even just have a focus, the equivalent of what we call a focus group, you know, have a conversation with folks to try to understand where would you go and then show them that you're willing to at least try it. And then when you try it, if it doesn't work, you could always stop. But it does signal that you're listening and it's not like, the hashtag olds are telling the youth what to do. So I just think there's a huge disconnect there and it's a real opportunity because I do think in particular, that I guess they call it Generation Z, they're in a tough spot. You know, like, And I've read that we're the most, at least prior to the pandemic, that we were the most segregated by generation in our history where people tended to only really interact with people primarily of their age group. I imagine that may have changed through the pandemic, I hope, but I would say seeking out some of that and then realizing, you know, we all have value to impart to others and particularly within a congregation, like if the generations can connect with each other and understand the value of each other, to me, that is a place where I'm hoping the pandemic ultimately leads us in a better direction, at least in terms of caring for our older generations and understanding the value of connecting as a family across generations. And I think the next extension of that would be as a a congregation. So I I think there are some places where we've all had more of a, a moral, spiritual education together in the last year and change than we ever have, at least in my lifetime. So that's something that I would say there's a real opportunity to build on that. And I think the ways in which it really starts to change the game are the ones that are also digitally connected in some way. I just think there's some real opportunities there. I think you need to be honest about where you are and how much you're ready to swing for the fences. And then I still think coming back to just coming at it in an authentic way, because at the end of the day, you are trying to help people if you are in that leadership position and you're running this thing. And then if nobody shows up or it's awkward, you're still doing the right thing. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that's good. Well, hey, Mike. We really appreciate you being a guest on the podcast. Let folks know where they can follow you and follow your work.
0: Sure. Yeah. Trendingineducation.com, dot com. Also, trending dot is my flagship podcast. You can also find me if you are on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, Mike Palmer. Also, Mike at Palmer Media is my email address if you did want to reach out to me directly. And it's also Palmer dot Media is my professional website.
1: Cool. Well, hey, Mike, we really appreciate you being here. We appreciate your time, and we look forward to talking to you again in the future.
0: Awesome.
2: always another conversation that was probably deeper in some ways than at least I anticipated. I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are after having that dialogue with Michael R.
1: Yeah, well, you know, in all honesty, I was trained under Mike. I mean, he was part of an organization that moved into the online space in 2008. I was hired into that division in 2009. And so I really learned just about everything I know from him. So I don't want to say I expected the range of the conversation, but it's not surprising because really it's just like any topic, any topic that you want to tackle. And that's where I have a lot of compassion for congregational leaders because there are so many things that hinge on what it means to run a congregation, but every one of those wells is so deep and you've only got so much time. We didn't get to work it into the podcast, but in the pre-conversation with Mike, he talked about, he used the phrase, busy is the new stupid. (laughs) Right, (laughs) I love that phrase. But, you know, I think the gist of that idea is that you get so busy that it reduces your effectiveness in so many spaces. One of the things that it sparked in me is how does a congregation be able to take the time to be able to focus on these different pieces that it needs to focus on without getting too sidetracked and going down too many rabbit holes, but at least having some layer of conversancy with All of the things that it means to run a congregation, whether that's facilities management, education, you know, really congregations are amazing event planners because you're doing an event every week, right? Or, you know, coordinating volunteers is a whole another aspect of what goes on. So there's so many things that happen in a congregation and it's so hard to find a way to do, and this is again a piece of education, you're educating in all of those spaces too, That it's not just about the faith formation education, but it's about all of the other aspects of education of how do you do things well and how do you do things right. And I think that's a tough nut to crack. And I just think that's one of the reasons why the conversation was so far ranging as it was.
2: One thing that I think I have been reflecting on that Michael said is when he was talking about what it means to be vulnerable as a leader and to, to meet people where they're at, when you're trying to educate around a topic that might be more tense, that might challenge values I hadn't considered the impact and the importance of that authenticity and that vulnerability in leadership. And thus, I mean, it goes back to something that I think we talked about in another interview. I don't know if it'll be before or after this one, but we talked about it when we interviewed Prop, the importance of storytelling, right? What Mike talked about was just being able to share a story from your experience that relates to the topic at hand and you offering that up yourself. It acts as an invitation for the people that you're working with, that you're helping to educate to do the same and might serve as a bridge. And I don't think I thought about it in those direct terms within the context of congregational or Christian education. And I really appreciated that he was able to name that and tie in that vulnerable storytelling as a key component. Because when we ended this conversation, I was thinking very technical. I was thinking about, okay, you know, what are the do's and don'ts of Christian education? What's the bulleted list? But it's nothing, I guess, in life is that clean. Everything's a little more fluid, a little messier. And this conversation showed that. And so when you can really bring yourself as you are, at least a piece of yourself through story into that experience, uh, I think it's got to be helpful.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think it has to do with the old way of viewing education and teachers is that they're the ones who have all the answers and therefore you shouldn't be able to stump them. And I think teachers maybe lived into that a little bit too much in thinking that, well, if they think I don't know the answer, then they're not going to trust me as a teacher or as an educator. But anyone who's gone through any kind of formal training or education will tell you, The deeper you get into a subject, the more you realize you don't know. Talk to anybody with a PhD, talk to anybody with a master's, talk to anybody who's gone to a Bible college, you name it. If they've gone down that road, there is not one set of answers. Yeah. And it's that vulnerability of being able to say, I don't know, but that also then creates a safe space for the learners to say, I don't know, or I don't understand this. Mm -hmm. You know, even at the age that I'm at, the learning journey for me is a continual reminder that the world is vast and huge, and I don't understand or will never know all the things in it. And it's been a matter of letting go of that anxiety that I need to know everything And it releases the pressure to allow other people to be on their own learning journeys and just to be a support system beside them as they're learning. And I wish that we could somehow distill that idea for people in congregations because a lot of times you'll have volunteers who are teaching and they've got a curriculum. But teaching them to be okay with questions that they don't know the answer to, questions that the curriculum doesn't cover— And, you know, either say, I don't know, let's explore that together, or let me get back to you on that. But the vulnerability, it goes to something I've said before on this podcast, is just vulnerability in general, that we don't want leaders to be bulletproof anymore. We want them to be real human beings. And part of being a real human being is at times saying, I just, I don't know the answer to that, and being able to help someone with the journey to finding a response.
2: So hopefully in hearing that, as a leader uh, or an educator, you feel the burden lighten a little bit, you know, that you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be bulletproof, but hopefully it just, it relieves some of that burden so that you don't have to shoulder the weight of having to know it all or having to feel invincible in your knowledge, because that's actually not what people want. And to your point, Matt, it's more about that relationship and developing that trust. And for me, I respect people so much when they can just admit that they don't know. That just means a lot because you're being authentic, you're being vulnerable. So then when you share something else with me, it tells me that you've probably brought that same authenticity and vulnerability and intention into that knowledge as well. And so then it makes me want to receive that a little bit better than I would if you were never able to admit when you're not quite sure of something. And so hopefully hearing that kind of lightens the burden for those that are listening.
1: Yeah, I want to highlight, Ben, what you just said, and Mike talked about it in the episode too about the idea of relationship, that at the end of the day, the relationship is more important than the content and it's more important than the knowledge. And so if you are youth pastor or a middle school educator or an adult educator in a congregational space, just taking the pressure off of yourself to be perfect about the content and just be building relationships with the people under your care, that's arguably more important than what you're teaching. Actually, I'll share an example of that. But when we ran our young adult group, my wife and I at our congregation, I started hosting movie appreciation nights. So, one of the things we did, we had a structured every Sunday night. We would meet and break into small groups, talk about what was going on in our weeks, and then I would teach. And then we would just get together outside of that as well. And I started doing movie appreciation, talking about storytelling helping them understand that every story is teaching, that, you know, it's teaching you something about the world, about the way the world ought to be or the way that it is, but, you know, shouldn't be. And honestly, as we got towards the end of our time with that small group, I heard more reflected back to me from the movie Appreciation Nights than I did from the actual religious teaching that I was doing in the other parts. And I realized that that was sticking more Not because I wasn't passionate about the other things that I was teaching, but arguably I was maybe more passionate about how storytelling impacts our lives. And it was the relationship and the passion that they appreciated and absorbed more than the other pieces of education that I offered.
2: You know, that's such a great point, Matt. And it just illustrates the power of passion, of storytelling, and of paying attention to what connects and what lands, right? And flowing with that and following that. We don't have to force things that aren't landing and aren't sticking. there a resource or two that stood out to you as we were talking that you want to share with the audience today?
1: Yeah, one of the things that was talked about in the episode was Mike brought up the idea of trauma-informed education. And I've run into a number of congregations that have used trauma-informed care resources, meaning that they're training volunteers to understand what it means to be trauma-informed. And Ben, actually, I think you know more about this world than I do. Can you give kind of a brief summary of what trauma-informed education is?
2: Yeah. So the way that I understand the phrase of being trauma-informed, it means to carry an intentionality with you into the work that you do, into the way that you hold space for a group. So it's recognizing that not everyone in the group is going to have the same homogenous life experience, that the topics you bring up may or may not activate people in different ways. They may bring up traumatic memories. It may cause them to be activated or triggered a certain way in their bodies, or it may just be a really difficult topic for them to hold because of their past experience. And so bringing a trauma-informed lens means that you have that awareness going in. You use that awareness to shape not only the topics that you cover, but really it's about the way you move into and out of topics and the way that you move into and out of space, the way that you hold space for a group in an educational setting. So it's bringing that awareness and bringing the intention not necessarily to avoid the hard things and the things that may be triggering but to be aware that they may come up and then to find ways through breathing exercises through grounding practices even through just naming and dialogue to find ways to help de-escalate and diffuse the activation or the trigger when it comes up in individuals
1: Yeah. And that's something that could appear in very unexpected places. So there's an article says, what does it mean for a ministry to be trauma informed? It's a really brief article. It's only two pages long. So if you're interested in that idea, which I think it's a really important idea as I understand more about the world of mental health and the more of racial justice, it's just something that really needs to be top of mind for a lot of people. You can check out that article. It'll be in our show notes. And I think it's a really good article that provides six key principles and just some basic information if you're interested in moving more along that journey.
2: Yeah, and I would also encourage folks, you know, thinking about a previous podcast episode that we launched in season two, to return to Prickly Pear Collective. This is another organization that puts out resources that are trauma-informed, but is also predicated around having a trauma-informed community. And so while not directly tied to education, it might just be a good organization to touch base with and to connect with if you yourself are seeking to learn more about being trauma-informed, Or if you're just seeking to participate in a community that holds that as a value and then to use what you glean there to inform the way that you educate or lead, I think Prickly Pear Collective could be a good resource for you. We have a lot of resources on our CRG around education. And so just generally, I'd encourage you to check out the Congregational Resource Guide. It's T-H-E-C-R-G dot org. You can search education. So I'm going to pull out the Sioux Falls Seminary. This is an organization that is dedicated to providing theological education and integrative counseling that's affordable, accessible, relevant, and faithful. And so I bring this out not so much as a tool that you're going to apply immediately to your congregations, but as something that might help resource you as the educators doing this work to expand your knowledge base, expand your skill set, expand your expertise in a topic area theologically or, you know, as it relates to mental or emotional health. And so check out the Sioux Fall Seminary. They have a lot of online offerings that are important and relevant, and they're easily accessible. So we'll link to that in the show notes, but feel free to check them out. They have events throughout the year that deal with different topics and offer a slightly deeper dive. So feel free to check out that resource.
1: Yeah, and we were so broad on our topic areas in the interview that it was really hard to nail down specific resources. I want to mention just one thing quickly. If you've never heard of a MOOC, M-O-O-C, it's a massive open online course. And major universities and colleges all across the country are doing these. They're free, and they're learning cohorts that basically teach you all kinds of things. One of the most well-known is Coursera. We'll put a link to Coursera in the show notes, but I encourage you to disseminate that information to your congregation because you can learn anything, pretty much about anything, from true experts in the fields for free and on your own time. So maybe we'll do a future podcast about lifelong learning and some of the ways to access things to continue to educate yourself just as a person for the things that you're interested about. But I want to throw that out there just so that you know that those kinds of things exist and are accessible and free and very high quality.
2: Thank you for naming that, Matt. Excellent resource, excellent for people to know about. And as we mentioned earlier, you can check out additional resources on the CRG. That's the Congregational Resource Guide. It is a website that we manage that is basically a clearinghouse of resources that we have vetted and collected for people like you that are just seeking information on a variety of topics to help them live out the mission of their congregations faithfully and effectively. So you can find that at thecrg.org. We want to encourage you to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram at Center for Congregations. We post about different resources on there. We highlight congregational stories so you can see and hear the good work that Indiana congregations are doing. And we let you know about upcoming events such as our education events or podcasts. So feel free to connect with us, follow us, and check us out on social media.
1: Also, remember to rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app or program. It's the best way for other people to be able to find this good information that you're hearing.
2: Yeah. And we welcome your feedback. So as always, we're going to shamelessly ask that you send us an email at podcast at org. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. Some of you have given us some feedback and we've been able to engage in conversations about different topics that have come up in our podcast. And we absolutely love doing that. Well, Matt absolutely loves doing that. So please feel free to, <laughs> to reach don't, out. Don't call Ben. <laughs> Reach out to us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and that'll help us shape either the topics that are coming up or allow us to tweak the structure to make this more meaningful and helpful for you, because that's actually why we're here. We want this to be a resource that is benefiting you and benefiting your congregations.
1: Absolutely. We want to thank Jaden Lee, who's our editor. He makes us sound great week in and week out, and all of the original music here is created by him.
2: And finally, we want to give a big thank you to the generous funding from the Lilly Endowment. That is the funding that makes it possible for us to be here sharing the wisdom of the experts that we connect with, with you all day in and day out.
1: So thanks for listening, everyone. For the Center for Congregations podcast, I'm Matt Burke. And I'm
2: Ben Tapper.